This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, we turn our attention to Surrey, where City Council tonight will debate and potentially vote on whether or not to effectively ban people from sleeping in RVs and motorhomes like campers on city streets. So we're asking you, would you support this ban? Do you think, yeah, sleep elsewhere or no, what's the harm here? Now, Vancouver also has a similar bylaw like this, but it is more kind of complaints driven. Uh, But they do have certain areas where they do like police and patrol this, say down at the beach, that kind of thing, especially at certain times of the year. But in Surrey, they're talking about making this happen for the entire city. So how do you feel about that? So cast your vote on this. You'll find it at SimiSarah980 or at CKNW on Twitter. You can email me, as several people already have on this topic, simi at cknw.com, or call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. We are going to talk more about this because Brenda Locke, a Surrey City Councillor, is going to be joining us to talk about her thoughts on this. The staff report is pretty specific. Essentially, they want to ban people from occupying a motorhome or camper on Surrey roads between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. They're talking about all over the city. Is this the right time when you've got a housing crunch and affordability crisis to be doing something like this? And where are those people then supposed to go? So weigh in with your thoughts on this. Cast your vote online. You'll find us on Twitter. Our Twitter polls at SimiSarah980 or at CKNW or drop me an email as well. All right, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the city of Surrey. We know that there's an affordability crisis, right? This is all over Metro Vancouver. We've got high rents. We have expensive housing. It's become tougher and tougher for people to find a place to live. And I think that's why this story from Surrey today is generating so much discussion. So Surrey City Council tonight is set to consider a proposal that would effectively make it illegal to sleep overnight in recreational vehicles or other large vehicles on city streets. There's a staff report that recommends council amend the city's bylaws to ban people from occupying a motorhome or camper on Surrey roads from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So if approved, those vehicles would also not allowed not be allowed to park for more than three hours outside of public parks, schools, churches, or homes even, between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m., and they can't be occupied during that time either. Now, in its report, staff note that the proposal is meant to address, quote, growing concerns from residents and businesses, and also to motivate people living in RVs and campers to, quote, move into suitable housing. Here's the thing. Don't you think if those people had suitable housing, they would move into it? Do you think people are living in those um, you know, vehicles as a choice? We're going to talk to one city councillor about this now. Brenda Locke joins us, a Surrey city councillor. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. What do you think about this idea? Well, I'm, I'm actually surprised we got this corporate report at this time, so uh, I'm absolutely not supportive of it at all. You, you called I it a corporate report. Why is that? Uh, well, it, it, that's what they're called. It's a report to uh, city to council, and they're called corporate reports from from our city managers. But I would say that this is actually kind of a knee jerk reaction to something that is um, only a symptom of, as you said, a very much larger problem that we have, which is housing. We have a housing crisis. Have you heard complaints about this? Like, is this a growing problem in Surrey? I have had, uh, I think, one, maybe two that I can recall um, ever, ever having any complaints. So maybe two. And so what kind of response do you think uh, you've been getting now since this bylaw has kind of come up for discussion? People are pretty disappointed that uh, the city would take this kind of aggressive stand. And I think, you know, like you said, we have to remember... Surrey has a vacancy rate of about 0.4%, and it's dropping. We are actually lower than the region. We have no affordable housing in Surrey or available supportive housing, and we have zero shelter beds. So I am unclear how our staff are supposed to assist people getting suitable housing 
there is no housing in Surrey. And what do you think this will do if this passes? Well, I, I think it's really an attack on people that are all already vulnerable. Um, I, I think we have to build our social infrastructure in Surrey. That is the issue. This, this is just a symptom of that. And uh, we should be focused on the bigger picture, which is our housing crisis. Do you get a sense at all, Councillor Locke, about how other councillors may be feeling about this? You know, I've only talked to uh, two of them so far, and they're also uh, kind of surprised. Um, but I haven't talked to uh, to all my colleagues. Right. So do you feel, given that you've talked to two councillors, what is your sense of whether or not this could actually pass or not? You know, um, as uh, you and I'm sure your listeners know, there is a, a bit of a divide on Surrey Council. So I don't know how how uh, council will vote tonight and and hopefully uh when we get to have that debate uh people will will uh pay attention to the issue a little more thoroughly councillor is surrey doing enough to help people who can't find a suitable place to live uh we are we are trying i will say that this council has been trying to uh, find lands and certainly um Minister Robinson has been supportive of us in terms of uh, BC housing and getting housing opportunities. So uh, I, I absolutely applaud her for the work she's done. But it's about finding the uh, the suitable place to uh, develop these kind of this kind of infrastructure. Right, but would you say that the Surrey have enough affordable housing? Does it oh, have enough places for people to live? Not even close. Like we have no shelter beds right now. If we had somebody that we had to place immediately, we have zero. And I don't mean maybe one or two. We absolutely have zero. So we have to uh, step it up. I'm uh, very concerned when the emergency weather uh, kicks in, and that's probably going to be later, a little later in the year. But we don't have enough shelter beds now, and we will not have enough uh, given what we know, we will not have enough um, emergency weather beds either. Right. So then heading into winter, that does not sound like a good scenario. How is Surrey going to deal with that? Um, well, we're we're on high alert. I can tell you that the people that are working on that, both here in the city and um, and with BC Housing, are are very aware of that. And so we're trying to look at other options and, and hopefully going to be looking at some civic buildings. So how will you be voting on this proposal tonight? Oh, I, I can't support this. I mean, it's, uh, it's um, to me, mean-spirited. And um, so I absolutely can't support this. Councillor Locke, thank you for your time. Thank you, Simi. That is Brenda Locke, a Surrey City Councillor, talking about this motion that is coming before Surrey Council tonight. As you heard her say, she will not be supporting this. But there are quite a few other councillors, and of course, the majority of councillors do belong to Mayor Doug McCallum's like Surrey First Party. So what about them? How do they feel? And really, Surrey residents, how do you feel about this? They are considering a proposal tonight that would make it illegal for anyone to sleep overnight in RVs or motorhomes, campers, on city streets, on any city streets, between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. And according to staff on the proposal there, they want to, quote, motivate people uh, to move into suitable housing. (laughs) Don't you think if there were suitable housing, these people would be in it already? And as you heard Councillor Locke say there, there are zero shelter beds available in Surrey. (laughs) Have you ever had you watch that movie? It's called The Big Year. It's got Steve Martin, Owen Wilson, Jack Black. I mean, it's not it's not hilarious or anything, but I watched it on an airplane. It helped me pass the time. And it was the first thing I thought of, actually, when I heard about this next story. There's so much excitement the last few days in the birding community of BC. Actually, it's getting a lot of attention in the birding community, period. So what is it? It is a sighting of a rare yellow-browed warbler never before seen in Canada and only once in North America outside of Alaska, if you can believe it. It typically spends its winters in the tropical climates of South Asia, sometimes in Western Europe, and yet there it was 
spotted Friday in an area known as Panama Flats. And on Saturday morning, something like 100 birders went looking for it. Turns out they actually found it. So we're going to talk about this very exciting development. Joining us now is Joffrey Newell, who's a bird watcher who made the original sighting. Joffrey, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, pleasure. And Melissa Haftig is also with us, uh, who runs the BC Rare Bird Alert. Didn't know there was such a thing, based in Vancouver. Hi, Melissa. Hi there. Um, Now, Joffrey, I'm going to start with you. Tell me what happened. How did you see this bird? Yeah, so it was uh, an amazing experience. I got a uh, call from a friend, uh, Jeff Gaskin. Uh, He called me to say that he had an interesting warbler. At the time, he thought maybe it might have been a Tennessee warbler, which is already a good bird, that it's far more common than this the bird ended up being so uh i rushed over and we twitched it out together i relocated the bird and immediately i saw that it was something way more rare uh i knew right away it was an old world warbler a species that's uh very rare in north america a bird that's come over from asia so the excitement levels were through the roof at that point i guess so and so tell me i know there's a lot of rules surrounding this but when you spot a bird like that, how do you let everybody know? What are the rules in bird watching? Well, uh, well, what I did first is I texted Melissa, who has contacts with a lot of birders across the province and beyond. And I also put it on a regional birding blogs. So there are a couple of sites. There's a WhatsApp app for Vancouver Island and uh, BCVI Birds, which is a site where everybody reports rare bird sightings that they find. So... The word gets out very quickly in the birding community. I guess so. Do you take a picture of it? First thing, I have to take some good photos to confirm the identification. Absolutely. All right. So, Melissa, explain to us how big of a deal is this? It's a huge deal. It's super, super rare. So, when, as you said, it's the first um, record, mainland record, um, because the, sec- the actual record in North America, the other record was in um, Mexico. And for birders, it's the ABA, the American Birding Association, really considers North America just Canada and the U.S. So it's the first one that's in the mainland of Canada and U.S. Um, outside of Alaska. And they're just the Bering Island Sea, uh, the Bering Island Sea Islands out there. So it's, it's really rare to have it here. So people are super, super excited traveling all over from North America to see this bird. So people will travel on the off chance that they might see this bird? Oh, yeah. People have come from Tennessee, California, Washington, uh, Vancouver, everywhere. Wait a minute. Already? It just happened Already. on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, they... I, I, went over on, I went over on Friday night to see the bird. <laughs> so I would be there for dawn. So just like that. So, Joffrey, is that, like, if that happens to you, if you heard about this bird sighting somewhere else in North America, would you have immediately gotten on a plane to go see it? Well, I'm not one of those really fanatic witchers, but if it was, you know, anywhere nearby, I would certainly do so. Uh, yeah, as Melissa said, there's only been a few North American records before before this one, so it's it's a hell of a bird, that's for sure. So, Joffrey, how long have you been doing this for? Well, I'm 24 years old. I started when I was seven. Seven? So 16 years, yeah. What is it that fascinates you about this? Well, my dad was always a, a biologist, so he, he really exposed me to nature at a young age, and he went... He went to uh, Beaver Lake with me. It's a regional park in Victoria, and we saw uh, my first great horned owl. So ever since that experience, it really got me hooked on birding, and, and now it's an obsession. So you document this, I take it? Oh, absolutely. How yeah. many birds have you seen? So I keep a list for the Victoria region. Uh, this species, the yellow-browed warbler, is number 335 for Victoria, for me. So, so that's the list I'm really working on. I have a life list as well, but I forget the exact number I have there. So, Melissa, is this common in the birding community? Is it you have your list? Are you always keeping track of what you'd like to see? Yeah, it's really common, especially if you're a twitcher. So you chase birds and then you have lists for like the BC lists or um, like he has one for Victoria. We have one for Metro Vancouver. Uh, people have their life lists, and so a bird like this is a huge deal because it adds to your BC list, your life list. It's just yeah, really incredible. Okay, now I have to ask you, Melissa, have you seen the movie The Big Year? I have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that accurate, would you say? Yeah, it's pretty accurate. It's really? pretty, very much accurate. <laughs> so what bird was that that they were after in Alaska? Because that's what I thought of when I heard that this bird, that this yellow-browed warbler, is usually only seen in Alaska. 
Uh, well, it's not usually we've seen. There's like a few records, and they're mostly in Gamble and St. Paul. Um, in the movie, they went for lots of different birds, like pink-footed geese. I mean, some of the things in the movie weren't accurate, that some of the birds were just too crazy there. Um, but they went for, like, great spotted woodpecker and, and all these different crazy birds. So, it, But it is true. Like, if a rare bird happens like that, people twitch it. And those guys were doing big years. And there was a lady that who did a big year that came um, yesterday from Tennessee. So yeah, people do really do that. <laughs> I love that. This is a story. So this has gotten people really excited. And now, Joffrey, describe to me what this bird looks like. Like, why is it so exciting? Well, with a lot of experience, it does look very different. It is a little bland greenish bird. So it's got a bold white stripe above the eye and bold white wing bars. It's very small. It's about the size of a kinglet. So barely bigger than a hummingbird. So locating this bird was very difficult. Uh, It flits about in the vegetation, so it stays hidden away in the leaves, but its active movements uh, help a lot in locating it. Okay, so what is the secret then to birding? Like, where do you look for different birds? Well, I mean, there's a lot of great sites around Victoria, for example. Uh, Panama Flats is one of the best sites uh, simply because of its habitat. So you have meadows, you have uh, deciduous thickets and water, so that varied habitat can be very good for a variety of birds. And just using your peripheral vision and and training your eyes to look for movement, flashes of color, and that really helps for locating birds. So, Joffrey, you saw this. Melissa, did you get a chance to see the bird as well? Yep, I went there the night that he found it, and I was there for dawn so I could see it in the morning. So, yeah, I've seen it already. (laughs) Wow, that's impressive. So have other people also seen it on the weekend? Like, have there been repeat sightings? Yeah, it's still being seen this morning, actually. So the bird is hanging around? Yeah, it's still there. (laughs) Is it just the one? Yeah, just the one. So it's a big deal. Yeah, my friends from Washington, they texted me this morning, and um, Jeffrey texted me this morning. There's a lot of birders saw it this morning, so it's really exciting. Okay, so now, Joffrey, is that normal for a bird, like staying in one location like that for now three, four days? Well, I mean, with, with every second you wait, you risk... Uh, hearing about the bird leaving. So, I mean, sometimes rarities are, you know, they're just around for a minute or two, and others will stay for days and sometimes longer. So we've been very fortunate with this bird that it's been hanging around for so long. It does sound like that. So, Melissa, let's say this has kind of piqued someone's interest to get into birding. Where do you think people should start? I think they should start with a good pair of binoculars, and you can get a good pair for as cheap as $100. And you just need binoculars. That's the main thing you need. Um, Even public libraries are now letting you rent binoculars and field guides. So you need a good field guide and a good pair of binoculars and just get out in nature and look at your common birds around your house because there's so many beautiful common birds. And, I mean, Jeffrey went to a a park that's, uh, you know, full of common birds and he found a a rare one. So you just got to get out there and look. So, Joffrey, it's kind of like you won the lottery, huh? (laughs) <laughs> it is super exciting, that's for sure. <laughs> so what's next on your list? Is there another bird where you think, oh, now if I can cross this next one off my list? Ah, well, you always have target birds. I mean, it, as you keep birding, it's, it always gets harder and harder to find new and rare things. Um, so a specific species I don't have. I just, when I'm birding, I keep an open mind and I, and I hope for something spectacular like this. Well, this was spectacular. Listen, thanks to both of you for being with us. Well, thank you very much. And Pleasure. Thank you. Good luck with the birding. That is Joffrey Newell, who is the bird watcher that made the huge sighting on Friday in an area that's called Panama Flats. I guess lots of birders go out that way. This was on Vancouver Island. I believe it was in the Saanich area. And Melissa Hafting, who is the, runs the BC Rare Bird Alert, which is based in Vancouver. You know, when you grow up in a military family, it's easy to see why you believe you belong in the military. Right? Our next guest certainly thought so. She was the fourth generation of her family to sign up for being a soldier. Yeah, fourth. But things did not work out the way that Kelly Thompson had anticipated. As you can read in her memoir, Girls Need Not Apply, Field Notes from the Forces. Kelly is with us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What was the process like writing the book? Painful. (laughs) 
It and actually, yet she laughs, yeah. <laughs> it started out as fiction, actually. And uh, I was doing my master's here at UBC. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just wasn't working. I was trying to do a fictional piece. And I had the women uh, in Afghanistan. and Because I, I felt that's what I needed to do to have women taken seriously, put them in a combat role. Right. And then I realized uh, a lot of my personal experience was infusing it. And so I ended up um, switching it to memoir because it m- came across more genuine. And so... I think I avoided doing that initially because it still hurt too much. Once I had a bit of time and distance from it, um, it became kind of healing at the same time. You have one grandfather who was a World War II veteran, yeah. another who was a Korean War veteran. Your dad also served um, in Golan Heights, among yes. other places. At what point, Kelly, did you realize as a teenager, oh, uh, this is what I'm going to do? I never wanted to. Ever. I mean, it was the thing I said I was never going to do it. I was never going to join. Uh, it was not the life for me. I was about to start my degree in professional writing. And then 9-11 happened. And to watch something so profoundly change our world, and then military families automatically go, well, what does this mean for us? Because you know that your loved one's now going to be shipped to another part of the world mm-hmm. in danger, and it's scary. Um, I also really wanted that education and I got my education paid for. Um, It just at that moment seemed like the thing to do. And what did your parents think at that moment? Was that something they had always wanted for you? Had they encouraged you, discouraged <laughs> no, you? No, they, ne- they never brought it up, never pushed one way or the other. But I did. we giggled a lot that um, I think they used to worry that I'd be sitting on a street like, we'll write you short stories for dinner. You know, I think they worried a degree in writing. What was I going to do with it? They that? wanted you to be able to support yourself. They wanted me to live. Yeah. And um, I don't regret it. Certainly, I don't regret joining, but it just wasn't the life for me. When did you realize that? <laughs> I think the, the moment I arrived at basic training, although I think we all feel that that insecurity right. that, we, that we're just not quite enough. Um, I was so arty and I like makeup and I like to paint my fingernails and I wanted those things to coexist and they they just couldn't in that environment. Uh, So I felt like I was having to tone down who I was. I don't think I ever actually thought about leaving. I was medically released for an injury, so I didn't actually leave by my own choice. So I wonder how long I would have stayed, even though I knew it wasn't the life for me and that I wasn't happy. But I felt like I was contributing to something bigger and that's what got me up going to work every day. Right. How long were you there for? Eight years. Eight years. Yeah. So you did serve quite a bit of time. I and, did. Yeah. And what, so what was what kind of roles were you put into? Uh, I was mostly working, I, I mean, I, did pay, I was a paper pusher. So I worked in human resources and I specialized in casualty administration. So um, that would be hard. It's tough work. It was my final posting where I was really wor- finally working in that environment. And uh, it hurts your heart. By the time I was medically released, it was probably mentally becoming time to go. And when you learned that, when you realized, okay, when you saw kind of the mental impact, the PTSD that all this that was having on soldiers, what was that conversation like with your parents? Because your dad also had some trauma, didn't he? Yes, my dad struggles with PTSD and has really gifted me with the opportunity to write about it and to trust me to do that is a really big thing. Um, I think we have forgotten a little bit about how it's not normal to witness such devastation to other humans, to animals, to all these things that we're a bit buffeted from in Canada for the Mm -hmm. most part, for the most part, I say, uh, as a side note. But um, so I think for that reason, he, I had this great understanding of what it meant to grow up with someone with trauma and then how to support other people who are going through the same thing. And often in the military, it's you just want to talk to someone who gets it mm-hmm. and who won't judge you. And that can be a slippery line in the military. You don't necessarily know who you can talk to about those things. You sound like you speak from experience on that. Well, I think I covered up, you know, a lot of the things I write about the sexism I faced in the military that was so pervasive and constant. I really didn't look at it as harassment until I got out. Uh, I mean, I was having my chest openly groped at work functions and and I don't know how that didn't register as being I mean, I knew it was inappropriate, but I, at the time I almost told myself, well, I knew I was what I was kind of getting into, but I didn't. What I was getting into was what I understood of what the military was from my family's perspective, but their perspective is from white men, and I was a woman, and that made it very different. 
And so when that was happening to you, what was going through your mind? Did you think, oh, well, it's just, you know, people, it'll be fine once they sober up? Or like, what was your reaction to that? It was devastation that the only way it seemed where I got to belong was when my body came with it. So instead of being appreciated for intelligence, for what I felt like I brought to the table, for right. compassion, I was instead valued for my body, and that's what it always seemed to slip into. So was that, do you think, the message that was was and is being sent then, um, to go along is to get along, and that's how you belong? Absolutely. And also because women especially were trying to prove that we belong there. And instead it would be nice if we saw the military – in including policies that support what different skills women bring to the table, which might not necessarily be physicality, so that we don't feel like we have to compete in that regard. And instead, we can just be on even keel for what we bring to the table. Do you think any of that has changed? Yes. Yes, absolutely. For the better? When I I was in the military, I was actually writing a blog for Chatelaine for a while. And uh, I was totally within my legal rights to do so. Uh, I informed my boss and everyone. And then a general, CSIS, picked up this, I don't know, found a file, made up a file on the fact that I was writing this blog. I got called in off leave to come sign a memo. Was I sure I wanted to write this? Was I willing to risk my career? It was ridiculous. I was literally writing about what it's like to wear a uniform and go to a mess dinner. Now, 10 years later, here's a book about sexual harassment in the military, and I'm pointing some pretty serious fingers and instead, bases are calling me and asking me to come speak. Really? That's change. That's moving in a beautiful direction. So if you recognize there's a problem and you want people who understand it to help change it, I think that's magic. So when you go, that's also a tough crowd too. So when you go to do some of these talks, what's your message? <laughs> I haven't gone yet. The oh. first one's in January. Um, my message is we are like you, but we are not like you, and we can all coexist together. And that having fun and having comradeship and trusting each other with our lives um, in all these different environments and scenarios can coexist with respect. Right. Do you think that when you go to do these talks, because I'm sure you're in the process of planning what you're going Mm -hmm. to say, that you will bring up some of these really awful incidents from your book where you say, listen, this happened to me. This happened to me. Yeah. And I think... And I think studies are showing, too, that when we, un- when we see someone who has lived an experience that maybe we don't understand, but we know them as a person or we feel like we know them, there's sort of, uh, you can change minds in that mm-hmm. way. Um, I think about the woman who was raped on court while we were on course and the way she was heralded out to re-traumatize herself by t- having to tell us all what happened in front of the whole platoon, uh, the, the women in the platoon. When Why? men. Why were they doing that? That's an excellent question. Basically, I felt it was to shame her to go on about how she'd been drinking and we should all be careful to not be drinking. And she was breaking the rules by having someone in her room at an hour, which men weren't allowed to be in women's rooms. It was ridiculous. And we would, when I say that to other men, they're horrified. But this was 10 years ago. This was not a long time ago. Um, So I think when they hear more of those stories and understand what it is to have to trust people with your life, but also to somewhat fear them. There's no comfort in that. It sounds like you're hopeful. Then. Very. Yeah. 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 It will keep changing. Uh, it's why when people ask me, oh, maybe women shouldn't join the military, kind of taking from the title that that's what I'm saying. It's not. I'm saying you have to go in as a woman, not a girl, because you have to be very confident in what you're willing to stand up right. for. And we don't change without women, female leaders. Kelly, thank you so much for your time Thank you on this for today. having me. Uh, Kelly S. Thompson is our guest. She's a former captain in the Canadian Armed Forces. Her new book is called Girls Need Not Apply Field Notes from the Forces. You can pick it up today. I think you'll really enjoy it. Yes, of course, today is the day. It is election day, voting day. Uh, lots of people out there casting their ballots. And of course, that's only if you have not already cast your ballot as part of the advance voting. But people are out and about casting their vote in our 43rd general election. So keep it tuned in here today, well into the evening as well, for complete coverage, results, analysis, you name it. It all starts at four o'clock. That is when the polls start to close way over on the other side of the country. And the first results expected to come in after about 4.30 our time. But we thought, let's check out how things are like out there right now. Is the rain dampening any enthusiasm? Standing by, Global News reporter in Vancouver Granville is Jennifer Palma. Jennifer, thanks for being here. 
No problem. Thanks for having me. How are things looking out there? You know what? I have to say, yay, go Canadian voters. They're coming out despite this rain, and it is a wet one. It's coming down in buckets, but steady stream of voters coming through here in Vancouver Granville wanting to make their mark today, which is good news. It is. Now, of course, that's a very critical riding as well. Mm. Uh, Sir Jody Wilson-Raybould is running this time as an independent. Have you had a chance to chat with people at all about how they're feeling? Yeah, of course. I spoke to about 20 people or so, um, and most people, they just want this over, quite frankly, uh, from the people I spoke with anyway. Um, they said it's been a long campaign, confusing at times, no clear front runner for them. Uh, some people said they really had to take their time and research, find out who they wanted to support. Uh, a lot of people also sort of criticizing the debate. They didn't like the debate and how it was the one-liners, as we've all talked about, and sort of very negative messaging throughout the campaign. So I think a lot of relief that this day has finally arrived. And I know a lot of people are going to be looking forward to listening to the coverage on Global and CKNW, of course, uh, to find out who's going to come out on top. Who will it be, Simi? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, Jennifer, that's so interesting, though, because there was a lot of, I think there was a feeling prior to this election campaign kicking off that people were really kind of bummed out about the choices. And would that translate into people not bothering to vote at all? But mm-hmm. I think what you just said there sums up what I've heard as well, is that no, no, this made people just do their homework harder. Yeah, which is refreshing to see and kind of nice that people would be. You know, though, I have to say, it was a little surprised. I came across two people who flat out said they're just not voting. Really? Uh, yeah, one said too much to not just too much to look into. Didn't even want to deal with it. They're all going to do the same thing anyway, aren't they? They're not going to keep their promises. That was definitely what that voter was saying or that person. Another one saying that they just didn't have the time to vote today. And so I did remind them that they do get three hours. <laughs> they do get three hours off of work uh, to go vote as long as they work it out with their employer. So that's definitely thing you can do today. (laughs) I have to ask them then, I have to ask Jennifer, what was the reaction when you reminded them that, no, no, you actually get time off from work to go and do this. It's not much of an excuse. Oh, (laughs) that's a good one. All right. Well, listen, thanks for checking in with us. Sure. No problem. Thanks for having me. That is Jennifer Palmer, global news reporter. She's in Vancouver, Granville. As part of our leadership series, today we're talking about the restaurant business. You know, BC is well known for being a hotspot in the very competitive casual restaurant category. I mean, think about that for a second. Earl's. Cactus Club, Milestones, Browns, White Spot. I mean, there's so many good choices in that particular category. And the first one on that le- on that list, Earl's, has been a trailblazer in the restaurant industry. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the founder and CEO, Stan Fuller. His leadership style is what has contributed to the company's recipe for success. Have a listen to this report from CKNW contributor Claire Allen. The first Earl's restaurant was opened in 1982 by founder Leroy Earl Bus Fuller and his son Stan on White Avenue in Edmonton. The original restaurant focused on fresh ingredients, great service, and an affordable price point. But back then, the company looked and sounded pretty different from the Earl's you know today. Uh, hi there, I'd like to talk to you today about Earl's great uh, beef dishes. That, that's right, Earl's beef. See, Earl's chooses only grain-fed beef. He then charbroils the beef to perfection, serving it in a variety of tasty ways. So for the best beef, it's Earl's. Take, take my word for it. Thank you. Fast forward through the 1990s and into present day, and the Earl's brand has become a major homegrown success, with 20 locations in British Columbia. The company has quickly spread across Canada and into the United States. Earl's founder and CEO Stan Fuller says that that amount of growth can be crippling for a company unless it has built a solid culture. That's a lesson he learned from his father. He got very serious when it came to uh, recognition and creating a culture around uh, making sure the customer is always right. And number two, making us understand that the people that that come into the business and and, uh, and are really the representatives of the organization in the business have to be treated like gold 
Fuller says it's that philosophy and culture that has helped build Earls into an international company. When we first started, I wrote a, a small book on, on the philosophies that, uh, that, that the family really believed in. And we called that, the, that was our original cookbook, but it was, it was a philosophy about restaurant hospitality and life. And that's grown and grown, and people have added to it, and, and they shared it, and uh, it, it's, it's alive and well. It's, it's a living thing that, 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 that still goes on. Earls's growth has created some challenges for the company, but Fuller says a true leader learns how to come back from mistakes. You just have to face up to it and uh, swallow it and, uh, and, and move on, I, I really believe. And, and there's got to be a, a learning from, from opening in a wrong location or, or, or taking it seriously when one of your, like our 10th and Trimble store, when it, it, it just no longer suited what the concept was. And uh, uh, we were still making money there a little bit, but we, we, you know, you have to face up to it sometimes and say, what's going to be best and how do we want to be thought of by the customer? I mean, everything has to be measured against, against what the customer wants and uh, how they're feeling. And, 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 and uh, at the end of the day, leadership has to embrace that philosophy overall and, and uh, make sure that uh, they stay in line with that. But, you know, over the years, we've probably closed 15 restaurants and for various reasons and uh, various mistakes and, and you learn from it and move on. Fuller is optimistic about the future of the restaurant business in Vancouver and abroad. I think the food is going to continue to change. As food gets more commercialized, there's going to be a real need for people to be able to go back and get some comfort foods, some home cooking, some, you know, real, real food, real ingredients, real sauces, real, real spices, and, uh, and, and, and executed at a very high level. I, th- I think that's, that it's only going to get better. For the Leadership Series on 980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. All right, we're talking about the election today. I mean, of course we are because this is voting day. But one of the fun things that we were talking about today uh, when it came to the election was what food are you going to eat when you're watching the election results tonight? This is a popcorn kind of night, I thought. Or how about pizza? Or as Jill Bennett was saying, how about some nachos? I I love the way people have embraced this discussion that we are having because I had some very creative ideas from people who emailed me like Jim. Jim says, I've got the wings going in an old bay brine. Come time to eat. The air fryer will be in the TV room. Wings in the basket, Jim says. Fries on the bottom getting basted with all that nice chicken fat. Yum. He said, I can hear the arteries hardening now, but hey, it's only once every four years. (laughs) I love that, Jim. You really go all out for election night food, it sounds like. Uh, Teresa wrote me to say, Simi, we are going to be eating hamburgers as we watch the election, as that is what the candidates have been feeding us for 40 days. Okay, I like that. Uh, Deanna said, best food for the election? I suggest poutine. Deanna, inspired. Brilliant, I would say. Nobody had yet suggested that for tonight, but you're right. Poutine would make a, an excellent, excellent choice on that. So yeah, keep your comments coming. Simi at cknw.com. Uh, let us know perhaps what you would choose to have for election night. Also, your predictions are welcome as well. Let me just run through one more time how things are going to go for you today. So polls are opening up. Polls are open right now right across the country, but they start to close at four o'clock our time, like way over in the other part of the country. So you can expect the first results to start coming in just after 4.30 our time. And of course, we'll have complete coverage. Joining us now is Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, David Aiken. Hi, David. Hey, Simi, how's it going? Good, thank you. Now, where are you and what's going on? I am in Toronto on the set. I'm on the wonderful, amazing set that uh, Global News will use tonight to do our results show from. And uh, if you're in front of a TV, it's going to look fabulous. And if you're listening on the radio, because we're going to simulcast this thing, we're going to have uh, fabulous analysis and results. Donna Friesen's going to anchor the whole thing. And I'm looking right now in front of my touchscreen, which will have all sorts of results I can dig down deep. And believe it or not, I'm actually looking at the lower mainland in Vancouver right now, because I think there's going to be some, some, some very close races, three-way races, get over on Vancouver Island, we're into four-way races with the Greens. Um, we're going to have, when I say we, the rest of the country is going to have to stay up late tonight because I think BC is going to be pivotal, uh, to figure out 
minority, majority, and possibly even who's going to be the government. That's what I was wondering about. Do you think that this at BC, we always have this feeling like, oh, by the time yeah. our results get counted, it doesn't matter. But is that different, do you think, this time? Absolutely, it's different this time, for sure. Um, here's how it's going to happen. The first, the first results are going to happen, are going to come out at about, uh, well, they'll come out at 4 p.m. Pacific. That's the, uh, when the polls close out in Newfoundland and Labrador. Then at 4.30 Pacific, Atlantic Canada results will be in. There's 32 seats in Atlantic Canada, and in 2015, the Liberals swept the region. Okay, now there's going to be some change, we think. The Conservatives, I think, are going to take at least two or three, but if they, and the, the NDP may take one, but if the Liberals start to lose eight or nine seats, well, that's their majority, essentially. That's the, it, the you know, they have, they, they now have to start making those up in other parts of the country. In Quebec, the Bloc Québécois has just been one of the stories of this campaign. They're going to eat a lot of Liberal lunch. In Ontario, the Liberals are going to do well. We're not so sure they're going to pick up seats. And so by the time we get to B.C., we could Conservatives and Liberals could be within four, five, six seats of each other. And so B.C.'s 40-odd seats are going to be very, 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 I can't put enough varies into this, important. <laughs> it's going to be, we're going to pay attention. And it's, and it's going to be seats in the lower mainland for sure. Right. I mean, I'm thinking seats that have like Delta, for example, especially when you sort of go south of the city, Steveston, Richmond East. Joe yeah. Pescasolito, I think, is going to be in a little trouble. Um, we saw a big by-election fight in South Surrey, White Rock, between Carrie Lynn Finley and Gordy yeah. Hogue. It's a rematch there again today. I think it's going to be, you know, play it by ear. Um, Cloverdale Langley, I know that the Prime Minister or the Liberal leader was there to support his candidate there, John Aldag. Uh, he's going to be in tight. That's sort of more traditionally conservative kind of territory. I mean, that's just a few. Then we've got Vancouver Granville. Yeah. Everybody in the country wants to see how Jody Wilson-Raybould does. So, uh, boy, oh, boy, I mean, uh, I can't wait till it's going to be 10 o'clock my time. It's only going to be 7 o'clock your time. Um, and I can't wait to see how uh, what BC's decide to do today. And do you think, David, that kind of demonstrates why we had all the big party leaders kind of in BC for the final day of the campaign? Uh, yeah, I mean, just, just logistically, it just generally works out that it's easier to finish in the west of the country than in the east, all things sort of considered. But for sure, I mean, uh, there's so much up for grabs. Obviously... The, uh, the Liberals are playing defense in a whole lot of places because they did so well in B.C. in 2015. Yeah. I mean, they really sort of painted the town red and all around. Uh, Jugmeet Singh has had a pretty good campaign. Um, he, they, the NDP started the campaign. We thought they might get, like, wiped out. And I'm not joking, like, wiped out. Singh had not done a good job getting his party ready with money, with candidates, etc. And then he turned out, though, to be a heck of a campaigner. And so the NDP are showing some new strength, and the strength they're showing is, in fact, um, you know, a lot of it's in B.C. We know about some of the downtown ridings, downtown Vancouver ridings, that uh, the NDP typically do well in th places like Vancouver East, where Jenny Kwan is. But I've been looking at there's uh, you know some seats in the interior, the uh, in uh, Kootenay, Columbia, for example. Uh, they just won very narrowly in 2015, and uh, the South Okanagan seat as well. In uh, uh, I'm just looking at it right now on my board, South Okanagan West Kootenay, uh, Richard Canning seat. Yes. So those are places where can the NDP hold on to those. Um, and then what about stealing some seats, you know? Yeah. Uh, is there some places to steal? I don't know that there's a lot in B.C. for them to steal. I think most of the steals will be, you know, blue trying to steal from red and green trying to steal from the NDP. But uh, there might be the odd seat in Ontario, perhaps, that uh, maybe the, the NDP can knock a Liberal off. Right, we'll see. That's a good point, though, because do you ever, David, remember an election that was tighter in the polls than this one? Not really, and uh, it, there's been a little bit of, big of a bit of a gap in favor of the Liberals in, in a couple of the most last polls. So you know they're up by one or two or three. But I mean, you're right; it's very, very tight. The 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 problem for the Conservatives is when it's really tight like that, is their vote is what we call inefficient. There's going to be ridings in Alberta where they're going to run up the score and win like by 81 yeah. percent. And the, all those votes in Alberta don't help them win any more seats, um, but they will help them win the popular vote. So it's quite conceivable, and it's not out of the range that tonight the Conservatives could win the popular vote, because where Conservatives win, they will win by a lot, but that the Liberals will end up with more seats. Um, and so that's when you get in these ties with the Liberals a bit ahead. Right. It really is to the Liberal advantage because of their, they're more efficient with uh, the way their vote is spread out. A lot of times, David, we look at election night as the end, right, of the campaign mm -hmm. and we finally have a result. Do you feel like tomorrow is going to be the end? Because I don't feel like it's going to be tomorrow. 
it, I, again, I think we, you know, all the cards at this point point to a minority. Now, um, you know, every party has an objective here. And for the Liberals, clearly it's winning a majority because anything less than that is really, it's a rebuke. It's a repudiation yeah. in some form or another of the Liberals. And so then we say, well, is it a slap on the wrist? In other words, do they come back with a strong minority? Or if they come back with a very much reduced minority, it's maybe a more of a, a punishment. And that means, in any event, the Liberals, or let's say it's Conservatives who win the minority, people are going to have to get along with each other. There's going to have to be some horse trading. There's going to have to be some compromising. And so that goes to, no, it isn't over. Tomorrow we're going to be asking people, well, what's your bottom line to support a government? What's, what's your must-have? Um, and then, of course... Uh, we may be into this in another year, year and a half, because uh, I'm not so sure it'll be a very stable yeah. um, minority government. So, David, one of the fun things we were talking about today is what's the best food to eat on an election night like this, right? Like popcorn, nachos, pizza. What would you pick? Well, if I was watching, I might have one of all of the above, actually, because I'm <laughs> fond of all of those things. But, uh, no, if, here on set, we're expecting to be uh, here. You know, we start at 7 o'clock Eastern, and we could be here till, you know, 1 a.m., yes. maybe later. Who knows? So we're keeping it light and heavy on the coffee. All right. I, I always thought election nights were for pizza. But, uh, David, thank you so much, and good luck tonight. Okay. Have fun tonight, Simi. You too. We'll be watching. That is David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. You will catch him tonight. Uh, starting at four o'clock, actually, our time, because he's some of the, he, they're in Toronto, so he was talking about seven o'clock their time. But it's four o'clock our time. The show begins. So you're gonna, going to get an abbreviated version of the Linda Steele show this afternoon from two till four. Then the national coverage will kick in. It is time now for Travel Best Bets, and Claire Newell is with us. Hi, Claire. Hi there, Simi. And you know, I was all ready to talk to you about. Um, something which I know we're going to get to, but in the, it's about, um, like overcrowding in certain destinations. And then I'm flicking through some past news releases that I've been kind of keeping my eye on. Yeah. And then I was all disheartened by something because back on October 16th, I saw this report about the Dominican Republic. You know how they've lost so many visitors, a hundred thousand visitors in 2019, and they're blaming media attacks. Right. Because there was all these and- people where bad things had happened to them while they were down there. Right, 11 Americans, and they were looking into all the investigations. Well, a report just came out in the Daily Mail in London, and I just read this. It says that the FBI said that they were all natural causes. Anyway. Yeah, I know, but uh, once you get on that roll of bad publicity, it's really hard. And a couple, I think it started right when they had a couple of assaults at hotels and it just kind of snowballed from there. And then they looked into the deaths. I know. Oh, anyway. And what I was actually looking for was um, the exact date that I read about gorillas certificates. So going to see gorillas in the wild in Rwanda and Uganda. That's expensive. It's expensive and about a little, oh, just a little while ago, I would guess less than a week. I just can't put my finger on which news wire I got it from. Um, it was saying that the number of certificates that are going to be released is going to be coming down. And it's been on my bucket list and I know I'd love to take my kids one day. It's kind of like one of those saving up for events. My understanding was it's like $1,500 per person. For the certificate. Yeah. Yeah, It's really outrageous. Well, now, don't you find that when people are are said, okay, well, you can't do this now, or only a limited number, everybody wants well, to do it, and then to. the prices, yeah, exactly. and then the, yeah, and the prices go up. Anyway, there's a bunch of places in the world that it's just it makes I get a pit in my stomach thinking about it, and and for me, the the one of the biggest things was when I went to see as a little girl, I got to go see Stonehenge, and I got to touch it and run around it with my brothers. And then you've heard me say this: I took my own kids, and we had to stand like 150 feet back. You can't even get close to it. I think that I, I was thinking about this too. We've talked about this, and I think it's because well, more people are traveling now; it's much more affordable, right, than yes. it used to be. But also in the last like 10 years, this is the Instagram generation. It's now not enough. You got to go have pictures of yourself posted online in these places. Oh, I know. I know. And you can literally see in, say, the Trevi Fountain, you can probably see 50 people taking a selfie at the same time. Like yeah. It's just out of control. But it's actually so bad for tourist destinations. The overcrowding is causing such damage to some ecosystems. And it's sad because it's the tourists that are doing the damage and doing damage to things that are potentially never going to open again. So some of the things that are, that are, I guess, in, that I've read in, in this recent article was about the fact that now 
Everest base camp. Lots of people want to go. You can actually drive in by car to go to the base camp. And they were getting quite a lot of people, like 40,000 people in, I think the last count was in 2015. But they are, they had to clean up eight tons of trash the last time that they did. It's terrible. Uh, Yeah. And so the Chinese government closed it down for a period of time. It started in February of uh, 2019. So earlier this year. And, you know, how long the closure will be for, I'm not sure. I mean, it just seems like it's happening all over the world, though. There was even a case for a sun. Do you you remember the sunflower farm in Ontario? Yes. These poor people. Yes. And the woman said that at one point there were 7,000 cars around that farm. And she hates she loved those flowers. The owner of the farm said this, I love sunflowers, now I hate them. Didn't this also happen to the Spanish steppes? Like they recently cracked down big time in Rome about all the things that you can no longer do on the Spanish steppes. Right, because they had to do a refurbishment and then 15 years later do a complete, a whole new one. That's how many people were going on it. So it take, took hundreds of years to do the first time and then... 15 years between the next. Yeah, so they've actually shut it down. You can't even sit down on the steps anymore. They keep people moving. You can't just do that. And I've often thought that when I've been to the Spanish steps or even up to see the antiquities in Athens, up at the Parthenon, I felt like there's so much damage being done. People are taking pieces with them like just it's wrong but imagine they get so many tourists i imagine that would be so i feel like we just need to i don't know how you control this the one that made made me crazy was that one that remember the beach Oh, um, in Thailand. Movie in 2000. Yes. yes, Maya Beach. And Leonardo DiCaprio was in that movie. And, you know, I watched the film. I thought, holy cow, that's gorgeous. But they. You and everybody else, apparently. Right? So much damage. That has been closed for years. And I don't think they're opening it again until June of 2021. Well, you can imagine how many people are going to be lined up. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. And the pictures, too, when you look at it, you're like, how is anybody having a good time going there when there's that many people on the beach? You know, you're literally just getting off the boat, taking a picture, getting back on the boat and getting out of there. Uh, But Claire, we got to get to our deals. Yes, we do. Yes, okay, let's do so it. I'm just venting about all I this. Know. Okay, so <laughs> the first one I've got, a lot of people wait for these because they're so cheap. There's the um, the cruise and stay vacations. So we just, we're actually, there's still some going because some of the ships are still leaving the Alaska run and going to sail in either Mexico or the Caribbean. But now the spring ones have come out. Most of them are leaving between April and May. And this one caught my eye, leaving May the 11th. It's a six-night Las Vegas cruise and stay. It's the airfare three nights hotel in Vegas, then you're transferred out to Los Angeles on a motor coach. It has Wi-Fi and a bathroom. And then you sail on a three-night cruise and walk off the ship here in Vancouver for $5.99, taxes of $400, so $9.99 even. Wow, that's all in. great. That's a, that's a great vacation. Yeah. yeah. The next one I've got for you is Honolulu, Hawaii. Yeah, I'm and in. This is some, I'm sorry, you don't even have to give it I'm in. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, a lot of people don't realize that other than spring break and winter break, which are the craziest times of the year, January and February are the most expensive months. However, I found some dates. January 9th. January 23rd or the 30th air and seven nights staying at the Sheraton Princess Hotel for 839 taxes of 246 so all in 1085 okay that's a very good, good price in. yeah and this one if you are looking outside and thinking geez <laughs> I want to go away soon I've got something <laughs> leaving November 21st or 28th it's to the Riviera Maya Mexico I looked at the weather it's really nice right now. I can only imagine it's going to get better in November. It's air and seven nights staying in a four and a half star beachfront, all inclusive resort, eight twenty five. Taxes of four sixty. It works out to twelve eighty five all in. Gorgeous four and a half star. I wouldn't be surprised if that sells out by the end of the day, Claire. Given the way the weather is outside today. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so off much. to vote now. Good. <laughs> off you go. Make sure you get that done. Thanks, Claire. Will do. Bye. That is Claire Newell. She's the president and founder of Travel Best Bets. For more information about the deals that she was talking about, or perhaps to find some more of them, all you have to do is look at their website, travelbestbets.com.